Good morning. I'm going to open up a lot of scripture this morning, so if you want to pull out your Bibles, open them up, have them ready. Try not to go too fast. We're going to begin with Psalm 86, which is right exactly in the middle of your Bible. And I'm going to read that as my prayer this morning. Um, I'm going to read it. You can follow along. Psalm 86. Hear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am devoted to you. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. You are forgiving and good, O Lord, abounding in love in all who call on you. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. In the day of my trouble I will call to you, for you will answer me. Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord. They will bring glory to your name. You are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord, my God, with all of my heart, and I will glorify your name forever. Amen. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going directly to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. These, of course, are the opening lines to Charles Dickens' book, A Tale of Two Cities. It's about a family caught up in the best and the worst of times during the French Revolution. It's about love, loyalty, intrigue, relationship, sacrifice. In short, it's about life. And life is like that, isn't it? Right and wrong, true or false, good or evil. There always seems to be this tension between what we know is right and what we know we should do and what we actually end up doing. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7, starting with verse 15. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. 
Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? So is that the way it is? And we just have to learn to live with it? Is that really the kingdom life that Jesus offers us? We simply do the best we can? Or is there a better way? Are we stuck in wrong thinking about this? Well, here's God's description of the consequences of wrong thinking, of doing it the wrong way. Romans chapter 1, starting with verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. And furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. Well, when I first read this, I thought, wow, those poor people. Look at the consequences of their wrong thinking. I suppose they deserve whatever God does to them, bad, wrong-thinking people that they are. I'm just glad I'm not one of them. I'm glad I'm in the right-thinking camp and not lost like they are. Until I read a little further into chapter 2. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment are doing the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what He has done. 
God does not show favoritism. Oh my gosh, he's talking about me. So does it matter? Can you fit into both camps and still be right with God? How does God really see this dilemma? Well, let's go back to Scripture. James, the brother of Jesus, in James chapter 1, notes that we should consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Well, there's the problem. He's not single-minded. He's not single-focused in his thinking. He's confused. He's unsure. He doubts. So is he talking about us? Are we like that? And if so, what are we to do about it? Well, let's ponder that while we hear the story of Sally Mead. Now, Sally was a contestant on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? She reached the final round, and if she answered the next question correctly, she would win the million dollars. As expected, the final question was difficult and somewhat off the wall. The question was, which of the following species of birds does not build its own nest, but instead lays its eggs in the nests of other birds? Is it A, the condor, B, the turkey buzzard, C, the cuckoo, or D, the mockingbird? Will Sally know the answer? We'll find out later. <laughs> But let's get back to our question at hand. Are we double-minded? And does it matter? Do we need to be singly focused? And does it matter? And if it matters, what can we do about it? So first, does it matter? Does it really matter? And I think more importantly, does it matter to God? In John's revelation to the church, Revelation 3.14, he writes, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I, I wish you were either one or the other, because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Jesus consistently spoke a single-minded message. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near, Matthew 4, 17. When he sent out the twelve, he said to them, As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near, Matthew 10, 7. He emphasized the necessity of a single-minded focus towards this kingdom. Enter through the narrow gate, he said, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many will, many will enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. The Apostle Paul, too, was singly focused. Our reading through the book of Acts over these past few weeks has shown us that whether in person or by letter, whether in the synagogue or on trial for his life, Paul was singly focused on this kingdom message. He is always 
and without apology carrying the one gospel that he received from Jesus in a vision the gospel of the kingdom of God repent and believe in the good news so I think we can safely assume that it does matter to God how we think what we think and what we do with what we think that we be that we be single-minded in this thinking and singly focused in our approach so let's return now to Sally Mead so Sally was on the spot and she didn't know the answer she had used up her 50-50 lifeline and her ask the audience lifeline so all that was left was phone a friend so she called her friend and gave her the question and the four choices the friend responded immediately without hesitation well that's easy she said the answer is C the cuckoo well Sally had to make a decision and she had to make it fast because time was running out she considered employing the reverse psychology strategy and choose any answer except the one that her friend had given but her friend had responded so quickly and with such confidence well more on this in a moment so let's get back to our dilemma now we have determined that it does matter how we think and that it's not God's desire that we be double-minded but are we are we double-minded I watched a documentary on the economic bust a system was in play in which loan officers made lots of money making loans that they knew could not be paid back they sold the loans to Wall Street investors who bundled the loans into financial packages which they knew were padded with bogus loans rating agencies like standards and pores they rated the packages as triple A knowing that they really weren't that quality then the Wall Street agents were making millions selling the triple A packages to unsuspecting buyers and everyone in the system knew that they were doing wrong but when confronted with what they had done their justification was that if they didn't do it someone else would and since they were only part of the process they were just doing their jobs Matthew 619 says do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also you cannot serve both God and money a mother noticed that a friend of her teenage daughter had a tattoo of a Japanese symbol on her back oh please don't tell my parents she begged they'll kill me oh I won't the mother promised but tell me what does that symbol stand for oh she said honesty <laughs> but scripture notes in Psalm 15 Lord who may dwell in your sanctuary and who may live on your holy hill he whose walk is blameless and who speaks what is righteous and who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue and does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man a recent study by the Barna group notes that 11 percent of the adult population is divorced 25 percent of adults who have had at least one divorce in their lifetime divorce rates among conservative Christians is significantly higher than for other faith groups and much higher than atheists and agnostics Barna himself comments further by noting that while it may be alarming to consider that Christians are more likely than others to experience a divorce that pattern actually has been in place for quite some time 
Even more disturbing, perhaps, is that when those individuals experience a divorce, many of them feel their community of faith provides rejection rather than support and healing. The research also raises questions regarding the effectiveness of how churches minister to families. The ultimate responsibility for a, ma for a marriage belongs to the husband and wife, but the high incident of divorce within the Christian community should challenge us to ask why. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. God's word is full of single-minded thought, a single-focused approach, a way that God is trying to guide us into, the kingdom way. Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew 19, 19. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5.44 Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Colossians 3.23 When an alien lives with you in your land, do not mistreat him. Leviticus 19.33 Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful, Joshua 1.8. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says, James 1.22. As we journey towards the cross this Easter season, we have so much that we need to consider. So much that we need to lay before God so much that we need to take to the cross and so much that we need to leave there okay so back to Sally Mead so what should Sally do well crossing her fingers Sally said see the cuckoo the MC responded is that your final answer and after a brief pause in what seemed like 10 minutes of TV commercial Sally said Yes, that's my final answer. The MC looked at Sally, looked at his answer card, looked over at Sally again, took a deep breath and shouted, You are absolutely correct. Sally Mead, you are a millionaire. But there's more to the story. But I want to finish my talk this morning with this story. This is a short story by a fellow by the name of David Greibner, and it's called Shadowbound. So once upon a time, there was a man who lived in the middle of a desert. Yet that was not quite true. It would be better to say that he was a prisoner of the desert. You see, somehow and sometime in the past, our friend had acquired the habit of following his shadow and only his shadow. It was a relentless and unbending compass, which he obeyed completely and followed without question. Every morning when the sun came up, he began walking in the direction that his shadow pointed. As the sun traced its slow crescent across the sky, he followed the subtle bending of his shadow. 
By the end of the day, he had traced a rough oval and was nearly back to where he had started in the morning. While his course varied a little with the seasons of the year and the speed that he walked, it wasn't much, and it was never enough to allow him to leave the desert. This had been going on for as long as he could remember. It was familiar and comfortable the only way he knew. Yet he also had to admit that it often left him feeling trapped and alone. Sometimes he wondered what it would be like to face the sun instead of always turning his back to it and walking the other way. And he longed to see if there might not be something more to the world than the desert. But he never seemed to have enough resolve ever to do anything different. Then one morning, while it was still dark, as he was preparing to set out again, something came and spoke to him. It was a voice. At least it was more like a voice than anything else. And it said, just stop it. That's all. Just stop it. Just stop it. But he didn't know how he knew, but he knew without a doubt that what was meant by this was following his shadow. Just stop it. Could it be that simple? What a lovely thought, yet it was a foreboding thought as well. Certainly there was joy and hope in what the voice suggested, but there was also fear and dread because following his shadow was the only way he knew to get around, such as it was. Well, about this time the sun came up and with it the powerful tug of his growing shadow. He tried to resist it, but could not. Yet all that day, even as he obediently followed his shadow, the memory of the voice and the experience of the morning stayed with him. It stayed with him through the night too, and while he made no significant changes over the next few days, it was enough just to have some hope. Then one morning, just a moment before dawn, he suddenly turned his back to the dark western horizon and faced the glow in the east. It was done almost before he realized what he was doing. The freedom to do it happened in a moment, and he recognized in his new freedom the presence again of the voice, which lovingly offered him what he could not offer himself. The rising sun in front of him was brighter and more wonderful than he had imagined anything could ever be. As the sun cut across the sky that first day, it was all he could do just to stand there and face the light, turning slowly now to keep his shadow in back of him. There was no question about going anywhere. Yet as the day passed, his shadow became less and less intimidating and his new freedom more and more familiar, even if it was just to stand still. Finally, one morning, the voice came again. As with the other times, he could not fully describe what happened, only that the voice brought him another gift. The gift this time was a sense of direction. Slowly, he put one foot in front of the other, fixed his gaze on some distant mountains, and set out. He wasn't sure where he was going, but at least he wasn't still going around in circles. And he certainly didn't feel alone anymore. So we are double-minded, and God desires that we not be double-minded, but that we change and become single-minded, single-focused people. So one final time now to Sally Mead. Three days after winning all the money, Sally hosted a party for her family and friends, including, of course, the friend who had helped with the final question. Jenny, I just don't know how to thank you, Sally said. 
How did you happen to know the right answer? Oh, come on, said Jenny. Everybody knows that. Cuckoos don't live in nests. They live in clocks. <laughs> well, this is a serious matter, this moving towards single-mindedness, and we need help. We can't possibly expect to do this on our own. We have become so entrenched in our ways. But where do we go for help? Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Does it come from the hills? Faced with overwhelming obstacles, we start looking around for help. David, the writer of this psalm, says, I look up to the mountains. Does my help, does my strength come from the mountains? In ancient days, during the time that this psalm was written and sung, Palestine was overrun with pagan worship. Many of the religious rituals were practiced on the hilltops. Shrines were set up, groves of trees were planted, and sacred prostitutes were provided. And when a Hebrew would look up to the hills, he would see these shrines. People were lured to the shrines to engage in acts of worship that would supposedly enhance the fertility of the land, make you feel good, protect you from evil. So David is asking the question, when confronted with problems, should I lift my eyes to the mountains and cry out help to these false gods? No, of course not. But people today are still looking to false things, to false gods, to relieve them of their troubles. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the creator of the universe, the lover of mankind. So this Easter season, perhaps today, maybe right now, let's decide that we're going to just stop it that we're going to just stop it, stop this double-mindedness and put ourselves in a position to hear the voice, the voice of the maker of heaven and earth. We have a great community here at Christ Church, people who love God, who love each other and who love the world. Let's take the opportunity of this community to call on our friends here among us for help, even if they are cuckoo especially if it'll bring us closer to the prize, to the voice, to a new and better direction. Let's not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. But here and now, by the renewing of our minds, let's stop looking to the hills for our help and look solely and only and single-mindedly towards God, starting down a new path towards Him and His kingdom. For God told Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 32, 39, I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me for their own good and the good of their children after them. Let's pray. Loving God, you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Teach us your way, O Lord, and we will walk in your truth. Give us all an undivided heart that we may fear your name. Amen.